I think the thing about the climate issue that's distinct is that we're racing against the clock. We need federal action, but if we're not firing on all cylinders, if we're not working at every single level of government, then we're not going to get there in time. And if the townships in New York are vetoing solar based on conspiracy theories, we're not going to solve climate change. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Caroline Spears, the founding executive director at Climate Cabinet, a group that provides candidates with climate information tailored to their own district that they can use to campaign. Caroline picked up two degrees from Stanford in climate-related engineering and then worked in the solar industry before discovering the need in politics for her expertise. We had a good conversation about Caroline's path as a political entrepreneur concerned with the climate crisis and what she's learned along the way. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Caroline Spears and Climate Cabinet. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. So Caroline, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, my name is Caroline Spears. I run Climate Cabinet Action, an organization that helps candidates run, win, and legislate on climate change. I'm from Houston, Texas. I'm from an oil and gas family in Texas. I got interested in climate change from a really early age. Ended up getting um, two degrees in it. That has just been my interest my entire life. Uh, went to school for the purpose of studying climate change, studied it, left, worked for a solar company. And then while I was working for a solar company, I kind of got the idea for, for Climate Cabinet and started working on that and ended up making that my full-time job uh, about a year and a half ago. That's a pretty good path. When you said oil and gas family, I guess I Felt some surprise for a second. Tell me about that. My family's from Houston, and, and I have family in, in Midland, Odessa, and, and that's the industry. Uh, like so many other families in Texas, it's the industry that folks from my family kind of got their start in and made their living in. Texas is a lot more diversified in its economy than it was, but also not an uncommon story for a lot of, a lot of Texans. Were your parents... Were they more defensive of the that industry than a lot of climate change people are? Like, just characterize where they are a little bit. Yeah, they're worried about climate change and, and would like to see it solved. There are definitely folks in the oil and gas industry who are still in the camp of climate change doesn't exist. They're in the minority. 
and everyone else is kind of on a on on some type of spectrum of it's real and what should we do about it. So it's not uncommon in the oil and gas industry to have folks who know that climate change is happening and people are different levels of concern. That concern for my family has has grown over time, the concern about about climate change. So you, you must have been a pretty good student if you went off to Stanford to be an engineer studying some of this stuff. How did you navigate that path? For me, growing up, I was always fascinated by this idea of climate change. And it really was because growing up in Houston, different people who I trusted and valued told me mutually exclusive things about climate change. And both could not be true at the same time. When you have your ninth grade biology teacher who tells you climate change is not real, there's so much methane from cows, so humans can't possibly be changing the planet. And then your 10th grade physics teacher says climate change is an existential threat to the, the world. Both of these people are, are in a position of authority to, to teach you knowledge, to teach you how to like be a citizen in the world. And they both also can't be right. Those are totally mutually exclusive and they're both science teachers. That tension was always fascinating to me. And that's Growing up, that tension definitely drove my interest in climate change and studying it. And that's kind of all I wanted to do when I was looking at, at different schools was I got a list of schools together and looked up every single climate class they offered, looked up all of their climate programs and ranked the schools based on that. It was a very easy process <laughs> to figure out where I was going to apply because I really just looked at what schools were known for being really great on climate change. And then I applied to those schools and then you know, results come back and you pick the one with the most, <laughs> with the most different options, the most different ways of studying climate change, and then you go there. So that was really my process. Yeah. And you did the bachelor's and the master's at the same place. What did you learn there? What did they offer you that you were able to study? How did you form your opinions through that process? Coming from Houston and coming from this place of dueling science teachers, what I was interested in changed really dramatically over the course of the five years that I spent. So initially I came in and I was like, I want to know everything about the science. Who's right? I already had an inclination, you know, when National Geographic and all of the medical societies say it's correct, maybe it's your ninth grade biology teacher who was wrong. But I just, I was like, show me the numbers. I want, so I took a ton of climate science classes initially. And then I was like, okay, I think this is pretty settled. <laughs> this seems pretty settled. So I, took policy classes um, and I ended up in this clean energy, clean energy development and finance class that I thought was really fascinating. So I kind of moved by the end of it, I was really studying like I was really studying policy applications and finance applications. How do we set the policies we need to build the technology to create all of these clean energy jobs? And then what do you need from a financing perspective to create clean energy jobs? And that's kind of where I ended up. Maybe you were lucky that you had two opposing high school teachers. Maybe that's better than having both in agreement one way or the other. Cognitive dissonance, I thought, was so fascinating. And people would, you know, people in my school were like, what are you interested in? You know, I, like, started the environmental clubs, and that was always somewhat contentious with folks I went to school with. And not in a bad way, but that dissonance and the fact that I was from a place where a lot of people disagreed meant that I really researched it a lot, starting from a very young age. There's this great 
website that I used to read all the time in high school, all the time, I mean, sometimes um, in high school called skepticalscience.com that kind of walks through, there's kind of this, you know, false notion about climate science. And then they tell you, they like cite the paper and explain the papers behind it. It definitely pushed me in that direction. There's something great about having an interest like that and building on it and making it deeper and kind of navigating the disciplines around it having that kind of structure can be really helpful. Yeah. And I wonder if you felt the same way having this podcast, if you kind of feel like you're navigating different, different elements of it too. I do. I love chasing different threads around and learning. I find people working hard in areas that I didn't even know that existed. And then one person leads me to another and I get to read the book that someone wrote. It's been like that for my my whole adult life in different subjects. What did you do right out of your master's? From that, I went to work for a solar company and I did solar project finance and development. So my job at that solar company was to look at the five gigawatts of solar that uh, we were planning on building over the next five years in across 10 markets and figure out which markets made sense to invest in and why, and within each market, what projects make sense and why, and to kind of draw high-level trends from that. And and from that, essentially realize how important state legislatures were on our ability to build the clean energy economy. We have the technology, it's at the right price, and how state legislatures can really accelerate or block that. That's the natural through line from from that job into, into what I do now. That gets you interested in politics. Yeah, I was always interested in politics, but yeah, that was definitely, it was always kind of sitting in the back of my mind. And then I was in this spot where I was running financial sensitivity analyses for state legislature bills that were being considered in the Texas state legislature by the Massachusetts governor. And I ran the numbers, right? I ran an internal view on how important are those state legislature bills, those decisions at the state level to our ability to build solar. And I would run those analyses and say, we cut a third of our Massachusetts projects. We don't build them if this goes through, for example. That's like the type of analysis that I was doing and realized, wow, these state legislatures are really important. We don't talk about them as much in the climate space. And then simultaneously started volunteering for folks running for local office to help them write climate platforms. And that's basically how this all started, because I was seeing the importance of state legislatures and our ability to actually build the clean energy economy and simultaneously talking to a ton of state ledge candidates who felt like they weren't supported in getting that information and actually running for office. So that makes sense. How varied, if you look across the states, what are the couple states that are the most solar friendly and the couple that are least? And how does that affect whether projects are happening. Yeah, so I come from very utility scale perspective. So there's the rooftop solar and, and I come from that utility scale perspective. It's interesting because things are always changing so dramatically. Texas is seeing an explosion in solar energy that's going to really slow down in a few years because they haven't built the transmission lines. <laughs> so we can build solar now and in a few years that's going to that's going to slow down because we just need to build more transmission across the state of Texas to make sure that we're connecting those solar-rich areas with the places where people live. It's an interesting dichotomy. And then in California, obviously, has been a really rich market. The question for California really is, 
a lot of the easy spots are gone. And so can California keep innovating in its policy landscape to make solar on homes uh, more affordable and make solar on homes more accessible and widely accessible to folks? So it's a little bit, because the policy landscape's always changing, it's a little bit challenging to say like, this state is the best on solar. But there are definitely states that are that are highlights. I think those are two of them. I, New York's doing really interesting things right now with permitting and development. Um, a lot of what we see at the at the local level, blocks at the local level, are the state or the nation's going to set some big. Oh, we're going to get you know, hundred percent of our clean energy by the state, and then you go to the county board, and the county board's not approving your permit to build the solar plant in the county. And, and usually it's based on these ideas of like solar is going to poison our water. These ideas that aren't true, but are kind of making it into that conspiracy, the conspiracy landscape that we so clearly live in right now. It's blocking a lot of solar. So New York's doing some really innovative things on saying, no, you can't use, we're going to streamline permitting and you can't use conspiracies to block solar plants. Like they have to be, if be well-grounded. So I think New York's a really interesting spot. A state that I think faces a more challenging road is Florida, because Florida Power and Light has moved slower than than a lot of utilities nationally. They sponsor ballot initiatives to kill solar in the state. They have a track record of really trying to slow that process down. Um, and it's so funny, just on the other side of that state border, Georgia, I think, is has been a, a, a southern state highlight in, in the race for solar energy. How much does the openness to solar align with the party control? Could you make a generalization that blue states are better for solar than red, or is it far more complicated? Yeah. So underlying everything we do, you know, when you're focused on state ledge, when you're focused on local level, um, there are 7,383 state legislature seats in America. And so we use a lot of data and a lot of technology to drive how we how we work. So a great example of that that answers that question directly is we took the 10 battleground states that were the battlegrounds at the state legislature level this past year. We went and looked at every single incumbent and every single climate or environmental vote they took last session and tried to kind of figure out that exact question. How much does partisanship align with people's interest and ability to pass climate legislation? Man, it's really partisan. (laughs) Everyone likes to say, oh, it shouldn't be partisan, it shouldn't, but it is, and this is the world we live in. And we know that from the numbers. We literally took 10,000 votes that were taken on on environmental and climate bills and analyzed the partisan nature of each of those people taking the votes. And we found that right now, Republican state legislators are out of step with their own constituents when it comes to how they vote on climate and, and clean energy bills. Unfortunately, it's very partisan. There's some highlights. South Carolina is doing a lot of great, has been doing a lot of great things at their state legislature. But overall, yes, it, it tends to follow the classic partisan breakdown. Tell me about the founding story a little bit for your climate cabinet action. Yeah. So climate cabinet action was started. I was working in the solar job realizing the impact that state legislatures have on our ability to build the clean energy economy. And at the same time, I'm from Houston, started volunteering. A Houston candidate said, hey, could you write me some information on climate change for my my race? And this was a race for the Texas State Senate. This was like the race for the Texas State Senate in 2018, early 2018. And I said, sure, but I kind of thought, 
who else does this? You know, who else kind of helps candidates run on, on climate change in a way that makes sense for their communities? And the answer was no one in Texas, no one that she knew of. So there are folks, turns out they do exist, but they're not kind of being proactively connected to the people who are running. So sat down, wrote climate information for her, climate talking points, just what he asked her, really, what do you need from me in order, in order to run on this issue? And then realized, you know, if she doesn't have this information with this was like the breakthrough supermajority state Senate seat. It's like, well, if you don't have this information, nobody else does. So got a group of friends together. We sat down. We wrote a district-specific climate brief for every single person running for the Texas state legislature that year. Flew to the Fort Worth Convention, the Democratic Convention, state convention in, in Fort Worth, Texas, and handed them out and went and talked to a ton of candidates to understand, get a little bit of better sense of like, what do you need to be good on this issue? And that's where this all started. From that, uh, I just kept volunteering for different campaigns. It gets a little bit boring to write <laughs> 100 or 200 district-specific briefs by hand. So we just created a database of, based on what candidates told us, we created a database of climate impacts and solutions for every state legislature and congressional district in the country and started using that. Again, this is still as a volunteer. And then I got to this spot where I started working with some of the presidential candidates on the Democratic side in 2019. And I had this moment where a presidential candidate campaign staffer sent me a speech that the candidate was going to give the next day on, on television and said, can you look over the climate section? And I was like, hold on. <laughs> Why are you asking me? <laughs> like, what? Sh- sure. Yes, I'll do this. And that, that's kind of when I realized, look, if these presidential campaigns don't have the climate resources they need to get on this issue, the state legislature campaigns, on average, sure don't. So that's when I quit my job and decided to do climate cabinet full time. That is a crazy story that a presidential candidate is going to you know, you're still just a couple years out of graduate school. There are people who spend their life in the field. I talked to Ed Maybach at George Mason Climate Communications and, and, and Tony Lazarowitz at Yale. And they're, you know, they have whole centers on communicating about climate. And that's not exactly what candidates are supposed to say, but we know there's information all over the country about it. One, you must be good at this. And two, wow, it's just an example of how when you get in there and and tackle something and roll up your sleeves, you can make a name for yourself, huh? Well, this is basically what we found, right? I'm coming from a space where I'm like climate all the time and I'm in the solar industry and we're talking about this stuff constantly and solar is the cheapest form of electricity on the market and all this stuff. And basically what we found is we know how to solve climate change in the climate space. We know how to solve climate change. We know what technology we need to get to like 80% of that goal. And we know what policies we need to solve it. Like the path is already set and the path has been set by Ed Maybach and the Center for Climate Change Communications. And we know how to talk about it. All that information exists. People who are running for office don't know that that information is out there. So I really see our role as the connective tissue. We take existing high quality information and research. We don't do our own research because why would we, right? People have already done it. <laughs> we already know how to solve climate change. So, and we just make sure that people running for office have that information, but most importantly, they have it in a way that's really helpful for their campaign. And so we spend a lot of time asking campaigns, what do you need to be good on this issue? And if they tell us 
district-specific polling, we go to Yale. And if they tell us adaptation research, we go to George Mason. I mean, I've used these, I know who these people are because I've used their information Yeah. because candidates have asked for it and the information they're producing is incredible and really helpful. And and we're kind of being a connective tissue to say, okay, let's get that information. Let's put it in a big database and really let's process that and, and surface that in a way that's really, really helpful to a campaign. When you say district specific, what is varying by district in what you're providing? What we want for every campaign is to have a through line to exactly the underlying research. So all of this is very cited. We have district-specific polling, district-specific clean energy jobs for every district in the country. That comes from the incredible research by BW Research Partners. We have county-level asthma rates for every single county in the country from the American Lung Association. And they want to know, how has the current incumbent voted on this issue? And so for that We'll go through legislative vote records and look through all the scorecards that all the state groups have done and really try to get that information to the candidate in a way that's useful for them. And that's the stuff that's really district focused. That's the combination of things that are district specific. There's other great district specific resources out there, but that's really the stuff we get asked about a lot. So that tends to be our bread and butter. So you're saying we and our, what's the staff? How did you pull together other people to help you? Yeah. So... We have a team of five people right now. Initially, this started with volunteers. Uh, we built out the database. I had some friends working at um, some tech companies who wanted a climate project. <laughs> and so they very generously volunteered their time. Um, and so initially, this is a group of folks, kind of me coordinating a group of volunteers. And we were able to raise some funding and hire some folks who have a background in uh, environmental community organizing and data science and technology. And so now we're a team of about five and we have kind of a revolving cast of folks who help us out and advise us on different things. How are you able to pay them? Uh, Fundraising. Are you a nonprofit? Yes. The work that I'm talking about right now, the candidate focused work is is a 527 organization. So we do fundraise for that. Go to climatecabinetaction.org. It will be a flood of donations. I'm (laughs) I'm confident. You should help these people out. Okay. (laughs) I know. Um, Yeah. So that's, that's really where that comes from. Was that hard to raise sufficient funding? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it it was. It is. It always is. Almost always. Yeah. I'm sure, again, I'm sure your experience with NGP is. Well, I didn't have to raise money back in the day, but I did have to not be paid for quite a while, but I've talked to numerous entrepreneurs in the political space and a lot of them have found fundraising to be challenging and some have been very good at it of course or or found a vein of you know a lot of people being really into what their particular thing was but it's generally hard hard work yes yeah i mean i started and i quit my job and my savings lasted me three and a half months and i was like all right i have three and a half months And what I did is I had already started doing this, um, but for about 18 months, I went to every single climate change event in the greater Bay Area, and I met people. And that's literally every check that has come in has been been through that. That's really how this started, is, is I literally went to every climate event. My day would be, I would wake up, be talking to state legislators folks running for office um, and putting together research and coordinating volunteers. And then I'd stop at about 4 p.m. And I would go to 
one to two climate events and like go take the bus there and show up and see who I was meeting and talk to whoever was interested. And that's how this all started from a fundraising perspective. So, and, and really, you know, initially too, a lot of these, it's really meeting people in the space and understanding where you are in the landscape as well. Like I didn't go to these for the sole purpose of fundraising. It was also like, you know, what are we doing and really figuring out that landscape and understanding how we can partner with people on where we fit. So you seem like an industrious person. I guess I have been. (laughs) There's nothing like five consecutive constitutional crises to um, inspire. With the fundraising, anyone back you that's noteworthy? Oh yeah. We just got um, new media ventures. We were, we're part of the new media ventures, 2020 cohort which is really exciting. One thing that's happened since you started NGP is there's just this great landscape of places that are, that are set up to kind of help young organizations grow. We were really excited to get the New Media Ventures 2020 cohort. Yeah, they get a lot of applications and they don't take a high percentage of them. It says something about you that you made it through that process. Thanks. I'm very excited about that and and very grateful about that. Actually, that's where where you came to my attention is I was just looking at their list of who they funded recently. What did you find interesting? Well, I generally try to interview most of the people in the political space that they fund or Higher Ground Labs funds. It's just one of the things I track is the new entrepreneurs that are doing interesting things. I'm particularly interested in climate among many things I'm interested in. And so I thought that's why I reached out to you. Nice. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and one thing leads to another, you know, you kind of get that validation from them and others. You, it makes it easier to raise the next dollar or to make the next connection. Right. I don't know what your experience is, but a lot of times groups like that can make introductions for you, do other things, coach you. What else have you gotten out of, new media ventures, if anything. Yeah, it's just started. So we're excited to kind of do that. I think the two things that I'm really excited about this next year are growing into a just improving over time and and how we do things. And so I'm really excited about, yeah, meeting other folks in the political tech space. I've hung out in climate land for a year and a half, and I'm excited to hang out in political tech space land through them and really see what we can learn from that really what we can learn from that and how we can improve on, on delivering on, on climate solutions from that, that world. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm also really excited because startups are challenging. They're very difficult and just constant improvement over time. Who has the best research on uh, lean startup methodology and who has the best research on um, data practices that will really, you know, an operations and a dashboard that will really make sure that everything you're doing has impact and you'll see the warning signs of when it's not having the impact that you wanted it to. So that's something we're really obsessed with. And I'm excited to kind of, for new media ventures and, you know, we're applying to some of these other accelerator programs to really learn from the expertise that's already housed within those organizations. And I mean that really genuinely. It's hard to do a startup. And there's a lot of people who've done it before and can give you great advice. And I think I've relied on so much great advice in the past. I've just been very, very grateful for all of the people who volunteered their time to 
help us and, and advise us in the past. And so I'm looking forward to continuing that because that's been really a good experience. Well, sometimes you have to regulate how much time you spend really working on your enterprise versus thinking about it with other people and you want to get that balance right. But I mean, you talked a little bit earlier about this landscape that you learned about in climate. How do you fit in? Who, besides a few people that you've already mentioned or groups, who else do you see as good allies for what you're up to? We're really um, focused on, yeah, run, win, legislate are kind of the three pillars of what we do. And in the run and wind category, which is um, climate cabinet action, we're really focused on who else is doing candidate training and early stage candidate support. And how can we? And there's a bunch of people. Future? There's a bunch of people. And so, how can we make sure that um, climate is there and it's present in the things that they do? And obviously, you know, we want that because we want to solve climate change. But also, climate and specifically clean energy is one of those issues that pulls better than almost any other issue there is on on the Democratic side. It's a really good win-win solution in that it helps people get elected. We're excited to this year to integrate with some of that pipeline and and make sure that they have the winning messages that they need. Because I think we viewed climate change for a long time as a political liability. And in the past two and a half years, it's become very apparent that it's a political asset. And I think you saw that this year with Joe Biden running on, on climate change and build back better. And our job is to make sure that that every campaign can run on this issue in a way that helps them win. It's hard not to think that if you found a way to create a flexible template for people to campaign in a particular issue area, that it might make sense to put alongside that other issue areas and have district-specific information. Have you thought, I assume you have, but have you thought about broadening your portfolio of issues into other areas? It's something we from a technology perspective, are set up to do. I think our team has a really good sense of what the hot button issues are in climate and how to talk about it so that it, it um, works in the landscape. We have tech folks and we have policy folks, and we don't have that same sense when it comes to other issues. So it's, an, it's one of those things where that's a product we could offer to another organization doing similar things on another topic. There are so many different issues that have these hidden tripwires <laughs> and that are not apparent to somebody who's not really in the field. That's something we are set up to do. I'd be really excited to do. It's not something that I'm going to embark on until we have a really good partner who knows their issue really well. Like if we wanted to go into criminal justice, like we couldn't do that without a, a partner organization who really knows that issue. And sometimes it's good to stay focused. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just curious how you personally viewed the Trump administration on climate. Clearly, they've come in and radically changed the direction of the country in the science, in what they, in pulling out of international organizations and agreements. How did that affect you and what, what did you see? Yeah, I think the thing about the climate issue that's distinct is that we're racing against the clock. We have a very, very short window of time to solve this. That really drives the way we think about it in that we need federal action, but if we're not 
firing on all cylinders, if we're not working at every single level of government, then we're not going to get there in time. You know, like I said, the federal government can pass all of these goals. And if the townships in New York are vetoing solar based on conspiracy theories, we're not going to solve climate change. So we have to really solve it on every single level of government. And we don't have time for delay. In addition to the, the overall divisiveness, which limits our government's ability to work, uh, they've lost us four years. And so I really view that as we've had a lost half decade. We can't do that anymore. And so we're out of time. And so the question for us is, how do, how do we make it up? If you were going to advise another person who was going to try to create another organization in the general progressive ecosystem, let's say, based on some of the learnings you've had, what would you tell them about what you've learned along the way and what pitfalls to dodge and so on? Oh, wow. It's so dependent on what they're focused on. I think there's a lot of things that are very common across starting organizations, but yeah, there are, of course, are things that are very specific too. It's, it's so interesting because I didn't ever intend to start an organization. I was just volunteering for different candidates, and then I was volunteering for more candidates, and then I got overwhelmed with the requests from candidates, and, and that really led to, to quitting my job. So it's weird starting an organization that you never intended to start, and it feels very like frog in boiling water, where all of a sudden you're like, oh, did I just, oh, I have to get legally incorporated now? Like, how do I do that, you know? But in some ways, even if you did that without that intention, it follows a lot of the theory about how you create an organization. You mentioned lean startup, but like, how do you test product market fit, essentially? How do you go out there and, and look at people who would be your customers and create something for them and get their feedback and modify it over time? It, you were doing that. Yeah, I would say, I would, here's what I would say. There's two ways to start an organization. Some organizations get started because a group of foundations come together and they say, this organization should exist. Or some person with a lot of capital says, this organization should exist. You can start with a lot of money and hire someone to, to kind of make that achieve the goal that it was intended for. Or you can start without any money. And, and the way you start each of those organizations is obviously be dramatically different. On that, one kind of realization that I had when I was starting this in a few months in was like, I'm not going to raise any money for this, and was really in that mindset was like, no, what do you have? Use the capacity that you have to do the things that you want to do. And people are going to talk to you about fundraising, and they're going to talk to you about fundraising over and over again. And obviously, that's very important. But sometimes you break yourself out of the like fundraising model a little bit and say, okay, what capacity do I have? If I don't have money now, but I want to accomplish the goal that I have soon, what do I have at my disposal? And for me, it was, I have, you know, volunteer experience in this area. So I think that's really helpful to, to explore. And I have a bunch of friends who are also terrified about the climate crisis and they want to help. What's the capacity that you do have and leverage that and and for me, I was like, I had friends who wanted to jump on for four weeks and do five hours a week. And so it was really, you had to take the entire project pipeline of, we need to come up with these um, materials for campaigns in four months. 
And I have to divide that into 20 separate pieces that can each be encapsulated. Like I can start someone on each of those separate pieces and put together those will achieve the goal. So it was like, okay, yeah, I can't hire anyone, but I have a friend who's willing to put in five hours a week for four weeks and they're really good at X. So I'm going to, I'm going to match them up to this piece in the project timeline and we're going to get there. Like thinking really creatively about and outside of the normal, the normal like employee employer model of how you build things, I think was, was really helpful. And it meant we had to get really good at operations really quickly. We got really good at remote work before COVID happened. (laughs) I was creating these giant Word documents being like, here's your role. And here's the broader thing that you're trying to accomplish. And I need you to do X and produce Y in this very specific format in the next three weeks. And then you stack up 15 other people into that into that project pipeline. And by the time they each do each of their pieces, the full thing is, is done. So and like getting really good at project management, really good at remote work, <laughs> really good at communication really early. And that's how we did our first round of candidate education. Our first couple rounds of candidate education was through that process uh, before we raised before we raised any money. Time and time again, I hear stories about something like this, where it works better to bootstrap something under scarcity than to have a bunch of money and and then waste it because that's often what happens. Not always, but often. So fascinating to, to hear how you did it. What is your current biggest challenge? We did a scenario planning workshop a few, a few weeks ago. And I think our biggest challenge is one of the, the great things about bootstrapping is because you just don't have unlimited resources, every single project that you do you know, if we're going to go to a candidate, we can't just offer them unlimited support. We have a menu of things they have to pick from. And so how do you really clearly define every single project that you're doing so that you don't outstrip your capacity? Uh, And I think that's something we had to learn through bootstrapping it. I think the biggest challenge that we have is the uncertainty that kind of comes with that. We are taking the database of district-specific climate impacts and solutions for every state legislature in the country, the only database of how every state legislator in America has voted on every single piece of climate legislation in the past five years. And we have to figure out how we want to use that to build down-ballot support for climate change. And that's a very vague goal. And so how do we kind of balance the tension between coming up with an idea, seeing that idea through, but then really being honest with ourselves about when that idea doesn't work and pivoting. And then how do we know whether it doesn't work? Especially when you're in a space that's a little bit ambiguous, early stage. How are we assessing that tension between what is essentially a very ambiguous task, a ton of data, and then coming up with projects from that data, and then knowing whether they worked or not, and iterating? Makes sense. Uh, Caroline, is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have? What is the strategic goal of the organization is something that I think about a lot. The goal is that every person running for office should know exactly how to solve climate change on day one in office. And right now we don't. So how do we build it? And, and that's what we're really focused on is, is building that. Do you have any Republican candidates that come to you or is this mostly Democratic candidates? Right now, uh, it is mostly Democratic candidates. 
there are a few Republican candidates. They are few and far between. I just hope that dynamic changes within the Republican Party. But from a strategy perspective, it's not a strategic focus for us right now, given the state of the party. When they're ready to be good on climate change, I personally, um, I'll be happy to be there. But right now, I think they have a lot of other things to work out with the, the storming of the Capitol. I mean, I think this is the great fork for, for the Republican Party. Conspiracy over the election, conspiracy over COVID, conspiracy over climate change. Is this going to be the moment where they double down? Or is this going to be the, the moment where they kind of right the ship? And uh, if they choose the second option, it'll be better for America. So we'll be there. I think that's a pretty reasonable answer. They are a mess right now. And, and uh, I hope that smarter heads prevail, but it's not doesn't seem too likely in the short run, unfortunately. Carolyn, it's, it's really an honor to talk to you. Uh, anything else you want to say? Yeah, I would love to hear a little bit about kind of based on your background and experience, what are you what do you think is really interesting going on in the in the tech landscape in the Democratic Party right now? Boy, it's, it's just uh, it's too big for me to answer. I would refer you to a bunch of interviews I've done. Maybe we got a long way to go. We have a ton of difficulty integrating technology and integrating data. And if you go to almost any campaign, it is difficult to put together a suite of the right products and information. Just your story is so indicative of how far we can go. If you take the area of climate change and and multiply that across all kinds of other thinking that candidates have to do, I think you'd find very similar things in other issues. You'd find similar things in just the technology that enables their campaigning or their communicating, how they figure out who's out there, how you collaborate in the progressive ecosystem. I mean, it's just, it's, it is a big question that I don't have a great answer for in a short amount of time. That's great to talk with you. Yeah, good to talk with you too. That was Caroline Spears. Caroline is at climatecabinet.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.